Like usual, I'm going to take you through the outline. We'll pray and then we'll get started. So we last week we talked about the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit in Christ's uh, incarnation. Passion, death, resurrection, and ascension in his exalted reign. Okay, so uh, the question to consider, this one is not a trick question, and it should be fairly easy uh, for you to answer. How many Holy Spirits are there? And then what is the implication of your answer for your life? So be thinking about that, and we'll talk about it for a minute. Our great triune God, we thank you for this morning for this opportunity that you've given to us to come together as brothers and sisters through the blood of your Son, Christ, and the work of your Holy Spirit, and applying that blood to our lives. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. We pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would allow us to feel your Spirit's presence, that you would speak to us through your Scriptures, that we would learn more about your Holy Spirit and worship and praise Him more. Pray all these things in Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen. All right, so what is the answer? How many Holy Spirits are there? There's one Holy Spirit. Good. Yeah, I told you, told you guys it was an easy one. So uh, we've been thinking about the Holy Spirit in the, in the life and ministry of Jesus. So what are the implications of there only being one Holy Spirit for your life? We talked about this a little bit last week with, um, bless you, with uh, the temptation of Christ. What is the implication for you that there is only one Holy Spirit? Right. Right. <clears throat> uh, yes, exactly. And, you know, we don't, we don't have the same relationship to the Holy Spirit as the Lord Jesus did, because obviously Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, but we are uh, indwelt by the same Spirit that dwelt with Jesus in his earthly life and ministry. Uh, stuff that we talk about today, particularly in the exaltation of Christ, is going to bleed over uh, into the lesson in three weeks, I believe, which is uh, the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. Um, but there's an awful lot to talk about in that, so maybe we'll get a, we'll get a head start on it today. So, uh, so a review from last week, the Holy Spirit in the incarnation of Christ. Someone describe for me briefly the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. They are also part of God. Yes. Equal in power and substance. Yep. Mm-hmm. What was the what was the relationship? I guess I should have been more specific. The relationship between the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus while he was incarnated on earth. Were they close? Were they distant? Somewhere in between? Yeah. Right, right. Remember we talked about um, that episode in Jesus' childhood when uh, he was at the temple and his parents didn't know where he was. And he said, you, you should have known that I would be at the temple because this is where I see my father, right? Uh, so from the very beginning, the very instant of the conception of the Lord Jesus, 
until, as we will see now, uh, or t- today, forever, um, the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus have been in close personal communion. Um, Sinclair Ferguson makes the point that um, the Spirit and Jesus were like best friends on on earth, right? So that's a, I think that's a, a cool way of, of thinking about it. All right, so let's talk about the Holy Spirit in Jesus' ministry. Open your Bibles to Luke 4, verse 14. <clears throat> so we're picking up chronologically right after the temptation of Jesus. Jesus defeats Satan in his temptations. Satan flees from him. And then verse 14 says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. So what does this, what does this verse reveal about his ministry in general? So the entirety of Jesus's ministry was carried out in the power of the Spirit. So again, we see the the really close personal connection between the Lord Jesus and his human nature, the Holy Spirit. So keep that in the back of your mind as we're talking about the rest of these things. The miracles of Christ, we're going to skip down just a couple verses, or one verse, actually. And uh, we looked at this last week when... um, we talked about how Christ is fulfilling the, the prophecies of the Old Testament. Someone read uh, chapter 4, verses 16 through 21 for me, please. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on a Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all of the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay, thank you. So, what does this passage reveal about Jesus' miracles in general? We'll talk about some specific miracles uh, in a minute, but just in general, what does this passage tell us about Christ's miracles? Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and just like in verse 14, he's doing these things in the power of the Spirit. What sorts of things did the Spirit of the Lord appoint uh, Jesus to do? Well, these are just some of the things here that he's listing, but he could have done anything he wanted, mm-hmm. because that's God's will. Mm-hmm. But it is in our in our general understanding is it's to heal, to liberate, mm-hmm. to lift up people mm-hmm. uh, from you know what some people would say uh, are some things that are you know, at the time people believe believe you know the blind man. Was it him or his father or his parents that sinned that caused mm-hmm. his blindness, right? Mm-hmm. And Christ says it's because this is to demonstrate the power, the glory, you know, the glory of my God mm-hmm. that I will restore his sight in your right. presence, right? 
Yeah. And these are things to glorify God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there are lots of things that Jesus did. Remember the, the, the verse in John at the end where he says, if, you know, if everything that Jesus did and said were to be written, there's, there's not enough paper or ink in the world. So we have a, we know of a small selection of what Jesus did and said compared to what he actually did. But in the, the prophecy from Isaiah, right, we have um, proclaiming good news to the poor, liberating captives, recovering sight to the blind, setting at liberty those who are oppressed, and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Um, so let's think about Jesus' miracles. Uh, I have that broken up into to two general camps, right? One is uh, miracles of Christ that were similar to those that God worked by other men, like prophets or apostles. And the others are miracles that pointed to his unique identity as the second person of the Trinity. So, which miracles of Christ were similar to those that God worked by other men? I'm delivering people from oppression to Moses, you know, yeah. the Jews out of uh, Egypt. Mm-hmm. The largest example of that. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and, and that's a good point. When, when we think about miracles in the Old Testament, we think about the Exodus, right? That, that is, it was a real thing for the Israelites to be freed from the Egyptians. But the Exodus pointed forward to our spiritual Exodus, right? From the kingdom of Satan. Okay, that's one. What else? Healed the sick. Hey, he healed the sick, right? Many prophets, the apostles heal sick, heal uh, lame people, paralyzed people. Good. What else? Cast out demons. Okay, casting out demons. Yes. Although we'll we'll get to that. It's it's kind of interesting. There's there's not a whole lot of demonic activity, except right around the period of Jesus' earthly ministry. But, yes, the apostles cast out demons, right? He raised Lazarus from the dead, right? There, are, there were prophets that raised people from the dead. What about some miracles of Jesus that pointed to his unique identity as a second person of the Trinity? Miracles that other men had not done through the power of God. He was able to defeat the devil in the desert when he was being tempted. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that last week too, right? There's Jesus is uniquely uh, disadvantaged in the desert, whereas Adam was uniquely advantaged. Jesus was had had been fasting for forty days. He was surrounded by wild animals. Uh, He was physically weak. He was in danger all the time. Whereas Adam was in paradise, presumed well-fed, uh, in constant communion with God. And whereas Adam fell, Christ was victorious. Good. What else? I don't know if you can things about uh, about her life that no one else knew, presumably. Uh, Yet she she sees that he is not just a prophet. He's he's the prophet, right? Good. What else? Well, you can... I think two two examples would be uh, the virgin birth, where he's not necessarily doing something, but his his coming to this earth Mm -hmm. is one miracle that no prophet can make lately. Right. The other is that... There are other examples of people believing in him, and he says, you know, to the centurion, you know, because of your faith in me, your servant is servant, right? Yeah, is is healed today, right? Not because I laid hands upon him, or I was there. I came to the tomb and I raised him from the dead. Mm -hmm. It is simply because of your belief in me. No prophet has ever had that. Right, uh, right. 
a belief where there are people's faith that in Jesus would mm -hmm. heal them or, or cure them in, in any way, shape, or form. Right, right. And it uh, also makes me think of the woman who touched his garment, right? Because of her faith, she was healed. Uh, not the physical act of touching right. Jesus' cloak, um, but... And that because he, now I would say this, necessarily purposefully did anything because he said, I, who touched me? Yeah. The power has gone out of me, and, you know, and she had been mm -hmm. because of the faith. Yeah. We think about um, the the power that Christ exhibits over creation. What are some miracles that that Christ does, uh, subduing the elements to Himself? I mean, we say He walked on water. He walks on water, right? Certainly, Peter walked on water for a little bit, um, but again, it was because of his faith in Jesus that he was able to do that, and then his lack of faith in Jesus, he fell. He walks on water, he calms the storm, right? Uh, he turns water into wine. He's, he, he has power over the elements to change them into something else, right? That's not something that uh, any, any prophet does. All right, we have a, a, a possible objection here. I'm going to read it in full. I want you guys to, to answer this for me. It may be asked whether all of Christ's miracles were performed by the power of the Spirit which we talked about, right? His whole ministry is in the power of the Spirit. If so, then it could be argued that his miracles did not attest to his deity any more than the miracles of the prophets and apostles show that they were divine. So, we have your potential objection. Well, uh, you know, Moses performed some miracles. He wasn't God. Paul performed some miracles. He wasn't God. How do you, how do you answer that objection? Well, Jesus himself testifies that his miracles show who he is. Mm -hmm. When John sent messengers to him and asked him, are you the one who is to come? He's like, tell John what you see. And I think, see that Jesus is taking on himself that I'm God because of what I've done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a really good point. Um, because the... Um, When the prophets and apostles do miracles, it's to point to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When Jesus does miracles, it's to point to himself, the power of the Spirit, and ultimately to glorify the Father. Um, so, that, yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good point. Jesus' Jesus's own words show us that his miracles prove something different than the miracles of other men uh, by the power of the Spirit. What else? What else would you say to answer this objection? The, the prophets, they were, they were full man, period. And mm -hmm. Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So you think of the prophets like Elijah, who you know, had moments of lack of faith. Mm -hmm. But Jesus, he's just steady the whole time. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, even, the, even the greatest prophets, even the greatest apostles were lacking in something. Jesus is not lacking in anything. That's a good point. What else? I was also thinking about um, Jesus and his um, ability to forgive sins, mm -hmm. which none of the prophets ever said, okay, well, you're forgiven in God's sight. It's only through Jesus' atoning death that he can give that um, assurance to people. And so I think that that would be an argument against that it is Jesus' atoning work on the cross that grants forgiveness of sins. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you, you know, it makes me think of the, the man he healed on the Sabbath, and he, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are like, whoa, you don't have the power to do that. And he says, well, okay, if you, need, if you need proof that I have power, then get up and walk, and he gets up and walks, right? Um, the, the miracles of Jesus were attestations of his deity, uh, but his real work is is not physical but spiritual, right? So his his healing of sick people, his bringing joy with turning water to wine, his uh, 
subduing the elements to himself. Those are all pointing to his real work on the cross. Good, good job. All right, let's talk about Christ's battle with demonic activity. So I have here Matthew 8. Um, this is the gathering uh, swine. You guys know that story. Um, for time's sake, we won't read it, but, but somebody just briefly summarize what happens here for us. Casting out of demons is a right. Yeah, into the pigs, right? Yeah, it's the nobody could heal him. None, no, none of the healers, the prophets, the you know, the anything, anybody that in that region could do anything for this. Yeah, so Jesus comes to him, mm-hmm. and the demons attest to his holiness. Yep. To him, we know who you are. Yep. Oh, Son of God. Yep. Right. So, so that's. Yeah, that's a that's another proof of Jesus's deity, his personhood as the Son of God. Even the demons are are calling him the Son of God, um, and he also has authority over the demons. Right? He doesn't just um, he doesn't just cast them out, although that would be uh, you, you know miraculous in itself. But he he tells them where to go. Right? He has authority over them. There's a quote here from Sinclair Ferguson. I've referenced this teaching series uh, from Ligonier uh, plenty of times already, but he says, I wonder if you've ever recognized the fact that there are really very few references to demons in the Bible. The noble thing is this, that most of them are found in one small land in the course of three years in the ministry of Jesus. So why do you think there there was so much demonic activity during the ministry of Jesus? Seems like it would be the same reason that he said, like you were saying, was it the, the father's sins or his sins that make him blame? So that no, so that I can show my power. Mm-hmm. Seems that it would be the same way for the demons, just for kind of the group. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah, that's a good answer for uh, like overall the reason. Yeah, because um, Christ is given more opportunities to show his authority over demons. Good. Think about it from from their from you know. The other side's perspective, do the little red hat thing, right? What what are the for Satan and his kingdom? Why would they be so active during Christ's ministry? Would it be that uh, that it was, it's truly Satan's goal to disarm all Christians, and if he was able to take down Jesus, that would give him make you look more powerful. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I think that would be um, that would be probably the reason that, that he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, right? Um, at at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he, he's trying to stop him before he even gets started. Um, but Jesus already defeated Satan in the temptation. So, so I have here connect this back with the temptation of Jesus. How do those things work together? Satan's defeated. He, he fails to uh, cause Jesus to sin, and now that and and you see the the demons when they're talking to Jesus. That have you come here to torment us before the time? So they know their time is limited, right? Mm-hmm. They know that their reign is about to come to an end. Why are they so active here? <clears throat> it's a counterpoint to Jesus's ministry. Yeah, yeah. We, what they they're trying to, as in, you know, C.S. Lewis says in the screw tape letters, basically gather fresh souls. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. their that's their mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we you know we've got some army guys in here. So if if there's a, a battle raging here and the enemy is really strong here, what do you do? Well, I mean. I guess you could go someplace else, but but sometimes you, you master forces there too, right? So Jesus is powerful. Uh, he, he is working uh, in the power of the Spirit, and Satan failed, so he's going to 
uh, mass his forces against Jesus in the land where he is during his ministry. So uh, there's this, this sense of urgency for Satan in his kingdom because they know there's a time. They know who Jesus is. They know what he's come to do. And they know that they are limited in, in what they can do. So they're going to try to do what they can. Ultimately, uh, a, a losing battle, right? It's even these these demons are are destroying these two men, driving them insane. Um, think about the, the the man who was possessed with a Roman legion of demons. Right? That's I don't know hundreds, a thousand men, or a thousand demons. That's that's a lot of that's a lot of destructive power, and. Jesus comes to them and, and they, they, they give up right away. What are you doing here? Are you gonna are you gonna torment us? Please just send us into these pigs, right? So the, there has to be some bit of God's creation that we can destroy, and, and Jesus allows them or sends them into the pigs. <clears throat> okay, let's talk about Christ's revelatory work. What is what does revelation mean? So what is what is Jesus exposing or uncovering in his ministry on earth? His power, God's majesty, God's glory. He is uncovering or exposing the fact that, uh, as he states, no one can come to the Father mm-hmm. by me. Yeah. Right? Our path to salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, Which, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm listening to uh, Sinclair Ferguson's exposition about yeah. antinomianism right now, mm-hmm. versus legalism. Yeah. So it's good. Is that the. Yeah, the. Um, the the marrow? Yeah. No. No. Okay. That's a good one. Um, yeah, Jesus is revealing the way of salvation, right? He's revealing himself. And what, what does John, what word does John use for Christ in the prologue to his gospel? The word. The word, right? So Jesus is the word of God. Uh, I'm thinking also of John 14. This is the, the beginning of, or um, right in the middle of, the upper room discourse, right? Uh, the, the first Lord's Supper. Philip says, this is verse 8, show, Lord, show us the Father, and it is, enough for, it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have you have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? So Jesus is revealing God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I have your Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. I'll read that real quick. It says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So, Jesus is the final revelation of God, right? We have, uh, we, we talked last week a little bit about some of the differences in, in the way the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he spoke through prophets, and it was sort of like trying to fill your way in a dark room, and, and, and you can say, okay, this is a couch, but I don't know what it looks like, I just know what it feels like. Suddenly, you know, the lights flicker on for a second, and you see a little picture of it, but you don't see the whole picture. Now, in these last days, God has revealed uh, himself through his son. So Jesus is the full revelation of God, right? Um, Paul in, in Colossians talks about Jesus as the image of the invisible God, right? So 
This again, we talked about Christ's threefold office last week, uh, prophet, priest, and king. The, the prophets pointed forward to the prophet. Christ is the prophet par excellence, and so uh, he reveals Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and like he said, the way of salvation. The last thing in the ministry of Jesus we want to talk about is Christ's joy in the Spirit. This is Luke 10, verses 21 and 22. Before we talk about that, I going back to Christ's, uh, Christ's revelatory work. In the Old Testament, right, uh, God is speaking through the prophets and is, um, it's through his spirit, right? The spirit inspires men to say things, to write things. Christ's revelatory work is also in the spirit. So this is, again, the power of the spirit in the Lord Jesus. So uh, Luke 10... 21 through 22. It says, In that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So I have here this quote from uh, Richard Sibbs. It says, All the communion that Christ as man had with God was by the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. All the communion that God hath with us and we with God is by the Holy Ghost. The Spirit is the bond of union between Christ and us and between God and us. So here we see, we've talked a lot about the close relationship that the Lord Jesus had with the Father through the Holy Spirit. We have that same uh, that same spirit dwelling within us. So that is, the spirit is how we have our, our union with Christ and our communion with God. Okay, let's move to the exaltation of Christ and his passion. This is Mark 14, 36. Someone read that for me when you get there. Please. <clears throat> And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possibly are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you do. Thank you. And then someone uh, turn to Romans eight fifteen and read that for us. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Okay, thank you. So, we are <clears throat> near the end of Jesus' ministry. He is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and is the Holy Spirit with Christ in the Garden? Is it another easy question? Yes, he is. <laughs> All right. We thought it was a trick. It's not a trick. <laughs> I think there are very few trick questions in this lesson. I might be forgetting some later, but um, so how does how do these two verses harmonize? How do they come together to show that the Spirit was with Christ in the garden? What is Jesus? Cry, Abba Father. And what does Paul tell us? How are we able to cry, Abba Father? Because we have received the Spirit. Through the Spirit, right? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that Jesus was adopted, like we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. But the Spirit that allowed Jesus to cry to his Father is the same Spirit that allows us to cry to God as our Father. So the Spirit is, oh, I'm sorry, I wrote Holy Spirit there. Uh, I apologize. The Holy Spirit is with Christ in the garden as he's preparing himself to uh, suffer the wrath of God on our behalf. All right, the death of Christ. Was the Holy Spirit with Christ when he died? Yes. Good. Why? How? How do you know 
this verse, Hebrews 9. I'm going to read 13 and 14, just because it's 14 starts in the middle of the sentence. I don't like to do that. So, uh, verse 13 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the vile persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? <clears throat> how does this verse, these verses, how do they show that the Spirit was with Christ at his death? How was Christ able to offer himself without blemish to God? Through the eternal spirit. Now, there is some debate, discussion about what that means, the eternal spirit. Some people say it, it's Christ's spirit. Um, I, I prefer to, to follow Shulviki uh, and, and some other people thinking that that is the Holy Spirit. We, we've talked, uh, I think, Pastor Mock pointed out last week that the Holy Spirit is often called the Spirit of Christ. So, Christ is offering himself to God without blemish in the Holy Spirit. And I really like this quote from Michael Horton. He says, The Spirit not only applies redemption, but was a principal agent of it. We often think about, we think about the Holy Spirit applying Christ's work to us. I prayed that this morning. And, and that's good. That's true. Um, but that's not the only thing that the Holy Spirit does, right? Without the Holy Spirit being in close communion with Christ at his death, uh, Christ would not have been able to offer himself blameless, without blemish to God. And so, we think about what does the Spirit do? Right? I asked that question last week, what's the most important work of the Spirit? Um, what does the Spirit do? We, we, we think a lot about what the Spirit does in our lives. And we'll have a, a, a whole long and full lesson in a couple weeks about the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. But we also need to think about what the Holy Spirit did in Christ's life. Because without that, it wouldn't matter, right? Because we wouldn't have... There would be nothing to apply to us, right? If the Holy Spirit did not minister uh, with Christ during his incarnation, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and exalted reign. There's this really, really good, but really long quote that I'll read from Edward Bickerstaff. Christ died as he lived, full of the Holy Ghost. And as our souls glow with responsive love at the thought of the Father's love, who gave his only Son, and of the Son's love, who gave himself, let us not forget the co-equal and co-eternal love of the Holy Spirit, in whose efficient power the stupendous sacrifice was made. So again, we think a lot about the Father sending, giving His Son uh, to die for us. We think about the Son giving Himself to die for us. We don't often think about the Holy Spirit's role in Christ's death. He was not abandoned by the Holy Spirit at His death. It was through the Holy Spirit that He was able to offer Himself. And so, uh, this also reminds me, Harry, uh, two weeks ago, I think, uh, <clears throat> talk about a quote from uh, Gregory of Nazianzus. Whenever I think of the one, I think of the three. When I think of the three, I think of uh, the one. And it's, it's similar here. We need to remember that the external works of the Trinity are undivided. Every person has, um, every person is, is uh, unique, right? The Father's not the Son, it's not the Spirit. But when they do something externally, they are, they, they are, Undivided. Okay? What about Christ's resurrection? Was the Holy Spirit present in Christ's resurrection? Yes. Yes. Good. That's so, the answer. Give you guys. Okay. I'm going to read Romans. I mean, there are things that, you know, happen, right? The Sorry? Roman soldiers are all put to sleep. Yeah, you know, not in a veterinarian sense, but uh, yeah. they're put to sleep, and they are uh, you know, the scuttle is rolled away, mm -hmm. and the uh, um, shroud is full, you know, is not 
it's, it's, it's where he was late, you know. So it's, those are works of the Holy Spirit, and, and, you know, with Christ yeah. and God and mm-hmm. coming together as one for the resurrection. Yeah. That's how it is an explanation. Yeah, that's a great explanation. I think sometimes we, uh, we get confused. You know, there's the angel in Jesus' tomb, we think, did the angel roll the stone away? Did the angel raise Jesus from the dead? Um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe the angel rolled the stone away. Maybe the angel put yes, the stone away. Yes, angels do anything on their own volition. No, no. right. And and so, uh, but but certainly the angel was not able to raise Christ from the dead. That's right. Um, so I'm going to read Romans 1, verse 4. Uh, Paul was talking about Jesus. It says, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So his resurrection from the dead is a further proof that he is the Son of God. Uh, And it's according to the spirit of holiness that he was raised from the dead. And then someone uh, read Romans 8.11 for me, please. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Good. So, um, this is this is what we've been saying this whole lesson and, and, and really this whole class, right? It's the same spirit. It's one Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead will raise you from the dead, you know, spiritual death, right? And eventually, finally, death to be uh, a new creation in the new heavens and the new earth. It, it might be kind of confusing here because it's talking about our, uh, our spiritual deadness into spiritual life. Um, you might think that, that Paul here in, in 1 verse 4, he's talking about Christ's human nature as opposed to his divine nature. But Joel Beattie makes the point that it's, it's not, the, con, the contrast is not of the two natures of Christ, but of the two states or historical stages of his incarnate existence. In his risen, exalted state, Christ no longer lives according to the weakness of human flesh, but according to the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, there's that whole really long, really awesome chapter on the resurrection body. What's sown in dishonor is raised in honor. What's sown uh, flesh is raised spirit. And Christ is made a life-giving spirit. Again, that's not to confuse Christ with the spirit. But, well, actually, I think we'll talk about that in a little bit. So I'll, I'll pause on it. But, um, yeah, we're, we're not confusing Christ with the spirit. But we are saying that the spirit who raised Christ from the dead, and this is his exalted reign now, his resurrected reign, is the same spirit that raises us from spiritual death into spiritual life. Then we have Acts chapter 2, verses 20, or excuse me, 32 and 33. There's a lot of a lot of turning today. It's good, good practice. This is right after right after Pentecost, which Pastor Mock will talk about next week. Peter gives a sermon and he says. It says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now, this might be this might be confusing, because Peter's saying that as Jesus was resurrected as he was raised from the dead. He was given the promise of the Holy Spirit. Didn't he already have the Spirit? How do you how do you uh, bridge that divide? Was it that Jesus did not have the Spirit before he was raised from the dead, and he has it now as he's raised from the dead? 
right? It's not that. So what is it? Or Jesus' followers? Yeah, yeah. Yes, certainly Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to believers at Pentecost and, and for us. But Peter is, is saying that Jesus received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. And from that, he, he gave it to his, his people. So why is Peter saying that he received the Holy Spirit when he already had it? He said he received the promise. Mm-hmm. So the promise to us as believers. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I have here another quote that's going to say it better than I will, so I'll just read that. It says, Though the Spirit filled Christ throughout his life, which we already know, we talked about that, Christ received a greater fullness... And he ascended into heaven and sat down at God's right hand. So, although Christ was filled with the Spirit without measure, uh, and the token of, or, or the, the symbol of that was his, his baptism, right? The Spirit descending on him like a devil. He receives an even greater measure of the Spirit at his resurrection in his exalted reign. And from that store of abundance, he gives it to his people. Okay? And now we'll talk about Christ's exalted reign. Um, we don't have an abundance of time. So, uh, Isaiah chapter 11. You can turn there if you want, but um, this is the, the righteous reign of the branch. I'll just read the first two verses, although all nine verses are good. Uh, well, obviously the whole Bible is good, but... Uh, <laughs> It says, uh, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Uh, so, this is, a, this is a sevenfold spirit that Jesus has, right? The Spirit of the Lord is resting upon Christ in his exalted reign. And it's the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. And then I'll flip to Ephesians 1, 13-14. We're getting into a little bit of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers, but that's okay. It's good stuff to know. Ephesians 1, 13-14 says, In Him, Christ, uh, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So how is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, a living link between Christ and his redeemed? So, just to situate us in you know, historical or chronological time, we are now at the point where Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father in the Holy of Holies, exalted. He is reigning as King, and He is um, He's in the presence of the Father. Does Christ still have the Holy Spirit with Him where He is now? Yes. Um, so how is Christ the living link between us or, I'm sorry, how is the Spirit the living link between us and Christ? As believers, we're given the Holy Spirit such as He has now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Spirit that dwells within us is the same Spirit that is with Christ in the Holy of Holies. You'll get bonus points if you remember the, the word of, that, that names that Christ, the, the, the Holy Spirit is filling the Holy of Holies, filling the, the, the prototypical temple. What was that word? Indoxation. Indoxation. Good. So, the Spirit is indoxated in the Holy of Holies, and that same Spirit is in our in our hearts. And so, you know, if we didn't have the Spirit, or if Christ didn't have the Spirit, then we wouldn't have that connection, right? When we pray, we are taken up into the into the throne, and we have access to the Father. When we worship, we are taken up into the presence of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. When we take the Lord's Supper, right, uh, the, the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper is not that we are 
uh, eating Christ's physical body or blood, or that Christ is pr- physically present in the elements, but that we are taken up to where Christ dwells into the Holy of Holies by the Spirit. So it's the spiritual presence of Christ in the elements. So we have uh, we have a living link between Christ and his redeemed. And then from the Ephesians verse, uh, Paul ca- calls the Holy Spirit the guarantee of our inheritance. I like to think of it as a down payment. So how is the Spirit either the guarantee of our inheritance or the down payment of our inheritance? Yeah, yeah. So, so here on earth we have the beginning of the good work, right? We have, uh, we we have been justified. We are being sanctified. We have union with the Triune God through the Spirit. But the things that we have now are not what we will have in glory, right? So, um, the Holy Spirit, right, testifies to us that we are children of God. Uh, it is the guarantee. If God has given us His Spirit, He will not take it away from us. He will not. We, we will not lose our salvation because. Yes. Uh, well, the verse before uh, thirteen says you were sealed with the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit. Yes. And so that concept of the seal, right? You know, which you know, we know that you know, mm-hmm. things seal and mm-hmm. so on. And that's like it makes it official. Yeah. Completes the transaction. Right. Yes. Excellent. So we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, that is proof to us. That's proof to God. That's proof to those around us that we are God's children. Good. <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry. I skipped the skipped the section here. I was supposed to read at Isaiah 11, 1 through 9, but something else. We talked about. Uh, Roman numeral 2 there. So we'll, we'll skip to Roman numeral 3, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3. I will read that because of time. This is ministers of the new covenant. And you show, Paul's speaking of Corinthians, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So, how does the Holy Spirit act on Christ's behalf as the Lord administers the new covenant? How does the Holy Spirit act on Christ's behalf as the Lord administers the new covenant? Convicts us. Mm-hmm. We should have sinned. Yes. What else? Regeneration. Right? That's work of the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives. Progressive sanctification. Just because the application of all Christ's work on our behalf. And we are living proof. We are living epistles. This, this quote kind of, kind of explains this verse. In the metaphor, believers are a living epistle or a living letter. Christ is the author. Paul is the scribe. The spirit is the ink. And the heart is the parchment on which Christ writes. So, again, it's proof to ourselves. We've been sealed uh, by God through the spirit. It's proof to God. Not that he needs proof, but... Um, and it's proof to other people that we are something else. We are children of God. And then I skip down to, to verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Uh, and then that, that verse that I referenced earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, talks about Christ becoming a life-giving Spirit. Is this a denial of the distinction between Christ and the Holy Spirit? Why or why not? It seems like there's some confusion here, right? The Lord, Christ is the Spirit. When the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then Christ becomes a life-giving Spirit. Is that confusing? 
the persons of the Trinity? I don't think we can totally comprehend the distinction of the persons of the Trinity, but you can separate them. It's similar to God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and through Him, everything was created that was created. Right. Yeah, yeah, good. So, so going back to, to um, several weeks ago, Pastor Mark was talking about the, the work of the Spirit in creation. The Father created by the Son through the Spirit. Um, there, there are, like, uh, well, well, the prologue of John... Uh, Colossians chapter 1 talks about Christ creating. Right? Um, and then we have other passages that talks about the Spirit creating. So it's not, um, it's not something that we need. We're, we're not denying the distinction. We're not confusing the persons. That's where the, the quote that Harry brought us from Gregory of Nazianzus. It, it's hard for fallible, created minds to consider one person of the, the, the unity of the Godhead without thinking about the individuality of the persons. And it's hard to think about the individuality of the persons without thinking about the unity of the Godhead. And then, like, like you said, uh, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, um, the secret things belong to God, right? There are things in the mind of God that we do not know and cannot know and are not supposed to know. Uh, but the things that have been revealed are for us and for our children. So uh, it's called humility, to um, stick to what has been revealed and to leave the secret things to God. Um, there's a quote here from, from Sinclair Ferguson about the, this question of, of confusion of the persons. With respect to his economic ministry to us, the Spirit has been imprinted with the character of Jesus. So, uh, the e- economic ministry of the Spirit, that just means the things that he does, right? We talked about the, the ontological Holy Spirit in the first lesson as distinct from the economic person in the spirit, who he is and what he does. That's that's not a that's not an arbitrary division, right? But with re- respect to what the spirit does, he has been imprinted with the character of Jesus. That's why the spirit can be called the spirit of Christ. That's why Paul says Christ is the spirit. He's not saying he that. Sometimes he's Christ, sometimes he's the Spirit, but the Spirit works through Christ to the glory of the Father. And then there's a, a, another long quote from Herman Ritterboss. You don't have time to read it, but you can read it uh, on your own if you would like. Um, so, to conclude, and this is, again, sort of a, a preview for next week, Pentecost, and um, the following weeks when we talk about the work of the Spirit in believers, what are some practical implications of the work of the Holy Spirit in the Lord Jesus' earthly ministry and exalted reign for you? So we talked about a lot of stuff today. We talked about a lot of stuff last week. What are the practical implications of those things that we talked about for you as a believer? Assurance is a good thing, and we should desire more of a good thing. We should always desire more assurance. Good. What else? We talked about this a lot, but there's one Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that created the world is the Spirit that dwells within us. The Spirit that, uh, by His power and activity, conceived the Lord Jesus uh, that baptized the Lord Jesus, that aided him in his temptation, in his ministry, in his passion, death, resurrection, and now exalted reign, is the same spirit that dwells within you. And that should be a comfort. It should also be a warning. We talked about this, I think, in the first week. Uh, Paul talks about how <clears throat> believers are temples of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we should not... Um, we should not desecrate the temple of the Holy Spirit with things like sexual immorality. So, you think about the Spirit of Christ dwells within you. It's it's a warning. Um, it's an exhortation to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, that are worthy of the Spirit. Obviously, through the power of the Spirit, but 
it's a comfort in the morning. All right, next week we'll talk about, or Pastor Mark will talk about the Holy Spirit in Pentecost. Should be interesting. And then the week after that we'll talk about gifts of the Spirit. Um, that should be interesting as well. Any questions before we end? Corrections? Additions? Okay. Yeah, if someone closes some prayer, if you prepare for worship. Almighty God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we praise you for this lesson. For, but most of all, we praise you for the great gift of your blessing upon us by your presence here on earth, your ministry, and your sacrifice for us, forgiveness of our sins. We know that your spirit is around us, surrounds us, and, and, and enters into us only through the, the workings of your Holy Spirit can we express the goodness that you possess and the holiness that you are. We thank you for the blessing of the, your word. We thank you for our church, our pastor, our elders, our deacons, and our congregation all work together to serve you. For these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.